I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode of The Trade Guys, we talk State of the Union. He's calling for cooperation, and he's calling for comedy, C-O-M-I-T-Y, and also compromise. And is going to point out a couple of examples where this has actually happened on his watch. USMCA. I did them a big favor in negotiating the USMCA, which is basically the replacement to NAFTA, which is one of the worst trade deals ever made. China talks. And what about that reciprocal trade act? All on this episode of The Trade Guys. Trade guys, it's State of the Union Day. Finally, we've been waiting. Everybody's been waiting. The government shut down, postponed it. Now it's in the people's house again. State of the Union is. No, we haven't. Who's been waiting for it? Well, we've been. Do you I really want to hear what he has to say? Yeah, I want to hear what he, I, I think I do. I want to hear what he has to say, and I want to hear what he has to. Well, what's he going to say on trade? He's going to give an update, isn't he? Well, he's going to defend himself. He's going to say that everything is working. He's going to say the Chinese talks are going well. Uh, they're beautiful talks. They're beautiful talks, and they're going to produce a brilliant success. That uh, USMCA is a good bill and uh, deserves to be passed, uh, and he'll probably get some applause for that. But, Will you get uh, applause from both sides of the aisle? Uh, some, I think, yeah. Not universal. Um, some people. I don't think he'll get a standing O out of the Democrats for for anything. But No, I don't think there's going to be a lot of standing O's on the Democratic side of the aisle. Well, look, trade is just a component of what I think is his strongest, uh, the strongest section of the speech, which is the economy. Look, the economy is excellent. The job growth is way ahead of expectations. Uh, overall economic growth is, has been quite strong. Main Street is benefiting. Uh, workers are benefiting. So if I were the president, I'd certainly craft the speech around the strength of the economy. And I would try to connect as many of my uh, administration's actions as a cause of that strong economy as I could, certainly trade for the president. He will he will talk about being tough on trade and making sure that we stop the unfairness of the past. And I think he'll try to connect that with the economy, which is his, to, to me, it's it's the strongest talking point he has. Well, you know, if you're President Trump if, or, or Mitch McConnell, you know, you've had two extremely productive years. Yes. That's oh. their point of view here is, 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 you know, the Democrats may have issues with the president's behavior. Um, other independents may have issues with it. Republicans may even have issues with his behavior. But if you're looking at it from their point of view, they're focused on this being two extremely productive years. Oh, that's right. Manners aside, they've gotten the results and they're going to trumpet those results in the speech tonight. You guys are being way too kind. Well, that's um, what we have you here for, Bill. <laughs> the economy is doing well. Yeah. Uh, most people are forecasting uh, a looming recession, but not this year, probably Next year. So as long as we can kick the can down the road. Well, that's what Congress does well is kick the can. I think what uh, is, you know, the the multiple elephants in the room is you've got a debt ceiling limit looming. Yes. You've got another shutdown and a wall debate looming. Uh, You've got appropriations. You've got a budget sequester uh, kicking in if they don't uh, if they don't address that, and you've got a whole new round of appropriations kicking in. There's a whole bunch of things that 
have to be done. I think it's fair to say that the economy's had a productive two years. It's hard to say I think the Congress has had a productive two years. Oh, well, they've they've done very little. Set set that aside. Keep in mind what we've got here, the guy who learned uh, his philosophy through the power of positive thinking. And I think he is going to talk about the economy, appeal to the Congress, say, look, we can work together and continue to achieve great things, or we can fight and achieve nothing. And I, and he, I think he'll, he'll, he'll claim the American people want the Congress to work with the president. He'll, he'll make that claim. So you think he'll take the high road? Well, I think he'll assert that. And, and then he will talk programs in between. He definitely will talk about, uh, na- about national security. He will talk about uh, f- foreign policy. He'll talk about trade in the context of, of the toughness and what it's, what it's delivered so far and what he expects in the future. So I think those things are components. But I think, I think he will propose at least the notion that we've done a lot of good things in the last two years. We can continue to do good things for the American people, but only if we work together. But a lot of people are saying, though, that he's not known for taking the high road. He's not going to take the high road. This is not going to be a particularly pleasant evening. Uh, for either side of the aisle. Well, no question he's a counterpuncher uh-huh. and, and can't seem to resist doing that. But at the same time, you know, deep inside, I imagine Donald Trump as a seven or eight-year-old boy sitting in the Presbyterian Church in Manhattan listening to Pastor Norman Vincent Peale, who was literally the pastor of the church. And that the theory of uh, the power of positive thinking and this, this notion of positivity is deeply embedded in him. Bill, uh-huh. are you feeling positive? <laughs> I'm a, I'm a Presbyterian. Do I have to claim him for no, uh, no, Trump? You, no. I don't have to claim him. I think he will take the high road in the sense that if you look at his previous State of the Unions, he's followed the script. Yeah. He's followed the script. Well, his last he, State of the Union the, was praised. It was a good yeah, speech. He's was, done the teleprompter, and I think his people will say, for that event demands a level of dignity and a, a level of, of, I don't know what the, what, what the right word is, sophistication, that you just need to really produce. That's what people expect. You need to appear presidential, and you don't need to appear petty or, or vengeful, which is his normal proclivity. So I think we'll get that. He'll articulate some things that won't get any applause. I think his Trade Reform Act won't get any applause. This is the thing that wants to give him even more authority so let's to talk raise about, tariffs. Let's talk about this. Bets are he's going to mention this tonight, that yes. he wants to expand presidential power over trade. This is something that is a longstanding no-no on both sides of the aisle. Tell us about this, Bill. The issue of who gets to make trade policy has been a contentious one uh, for a long time in Congress. Uh, uh, Members of Congress point to Article 1, Section 8, which says the Congress uh, can uh, has authority to uh, regulate interstate and foreign commerce. The presidents always point to Article 2, which is the executive authority section, which says the president has the authority to conduct foreign relations. And, you know, there's kind of meat in the middle. And up, up until 1934, the Congress set trade policy. Of course, up until 1934, trade policy was mostly tariffs. There wasn't a lot more to it than that. Uh, and Congress set tariffs, and they did it one by one. You know, Smoot-Hawley was thousands of individual provisions on regulating tariffs. And, you know, the economic record suggests they didn't do that good a job of it. Um, What Roosevelt did, uh, using the Depression as an argument, was to persuade Congress to give the president the authority to negotiate. But what he did, Trump wants to break this cycle. What the president did with Congress was to break the policy process into three parts. The authorization, the negotiations, and the approval. 
Congress controls, and even under Roosevelt and since, Congress controls the first part and the last part. They authorize the president to do things, and he can't do those things unless they authorize him. And they usually authorize him with conditions. Here's what we want you to do, and here's what we want you to try to take care of. They understand that you don't get 100%, but they had to just do that. Then what the new thing is, the president then can go off and do that. He gets to do it. It's an executive action. But at the end of the day, Congress, it comes back to Congress. Congress has to approve it. Uh, what Trump wants to do is take away the last part, actually, and the front and part, part of the first part, and yeah. part of the first part, yeah. and say, if I find a tariff uh, that I think is unfair, where theirs is higher than ours is, then I can unilaterally uh, raise duties in order to so this equalize is a pretty the situation. Big expansion. It's huge. Well, it, it is. It's huge. It's it's crafted in a way that makes it sound reasonable. Look, they talk yes. about reciprocity. Now, keep in mind, in 1934, it was the Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act that gave Roosevelt this authority that Bill just described. So reciprocity has been an idea for a long time in trade policy. And reciprocity sounds fair to the average person. It's, well, it's even Stephen. We, they do this to us. We ought to do that to them. And so there's, a, there's an element of messaging in there. But what it does is, is breaks open the notion that open markets are actually something that Congress is in favor of, and many in Congress want to manage that. And frankly, the congressional constituents, businesses around the country, uh, tend to benefit from open markets. They're in favor of it. They really don't want higher tariffs for a lot of reasons. But but the, the notion of, of Congress no longer having uh, a key role, the, the central role, in deciding what our trade policy should be is the fundamental change. And it's, it's masked in this uh, idea of reciprocity. Well, can he get it through? No. No. Because, I mean, he can't just declare this unilaterally. He needs legislative This requires legislation, and he's not going to get it. The the Democrats have no reason in the world to give this president more authority for anything. And I don't think it's going to get – Senator Grassley has already said that it's a non-starter in the Senate. Chairman Grassley basically laughed it off. He he, he has no interest in this. And literally, when when asked about it, said, we have no interest in giving more authority to the president on trade. (laughs) So it's quite direct. So so why why is Trump going to bring this up tonight? Is this something with his base? Is this what fits his message? His message is: the United States is being treated unfairly. Right. The I'm evidence the guy going to get you a evidence deal. of the unfairness are the, these differentials in tariff. I'm going to make it fair. That's his trade message, like it or not, or right or wrong, I should say. And there's more poll data out now from our favorite Pew Research Center. We love Pew. We love Pew. We love Bruce Stokes, who does a lot of this, and the data shows that the public in general is more supportive of trade and more supportive of trade agreements than ever. And it also shows on the Republican side the very sharp dip uh, in the negative territory on trade that occurred in 2015, 2016, and 2017 is now coming back. Okay, so the and president's Republicans not a, are coming back into the pro-trade column. So the president is not a man who's unaware of polls. W- One is, would think not. What does this tell him? It may not tell him as much as what I just said, because there's another another element of the polls. While it shows a lot of support, it also shows that uh, for most people, that while they have views on trade, it's not very important. You know, uh-huh. and if you ask, uh, here's a list of things that are you worried about these things? Trade, which used to be number nine. Uh, is now number 13. Health care, the economy, terrorism are usually the big three. Uh-huh. But it's even slipped below climate change now, which is, uh, and it used to always be one above, t- t- <laughs> one above climate change, and now it's below. So the, the point is, if you ask people what they think about trade, 
they'll tell you something happy about it for the most part. But then if you ask them, do they care about trade? It turns out they care about other things. So they don't really vote about trade. Well, does this suggest that trade is big and complex the way climate change is big and complex and hard to actually vote on? I think it means people are conflicted about it. Yeah, most likely people people have have uh, varying views on the elements of it, and overall think it benefits their life. But it's it's not something they think about every day. In fact, only only President Trump has made them think about it every day. Which and is, the trade guys have made them think about it every I, day. I always tell my friends the president's been good for business. Yeah. So <laughs> it's sort of like cognitive dissonance. You know, I think there's a lot of people that have conflicting thoughts at the same time, and they don't worry about reconciling them, because when you ask other questions about are you for trade? The answer is yes. Uh, does trade cost jobs? The answer there is often yes, too. Uh, does trade raise prices? You'd be surprised a number of people think trade actually raises prices when the truth is, is the opposite. So people have contradictory views about it uh, internally that they don't bother to reconcile. They just have those views. That's why we're here. We're here to tell people what the truth is, to wade through it all. And to, to tell them when they're wrong. Well, to, yeah. no, just to tell, give them more information and talk about trade in ways that everybody can understand. So if we're talking about trade in ways that everybody can understand, tonight the president is certainly going to talk about his talks with China, which, as we said at the beginning, were, were beautiful and ongoing. And but importantly, he'll probably lead with China because that's the area of trade policy in which right. he has the greatest public support. Yeah. And he actually has bipartisan support in for Congress. dealing with China in Congress. The Congress is behind the president in terms of getting tough with China and protecting U.S. interests. Okay, well, so that's a great thing, thing to lead off with. Well, as of this morning, China and the United States have 25 days to reach a deal, or President Trump's going to raise duties on $200 billion worth of Chinese goods to 25%, uh, up from 10% currently. That's another hike. He's, yes. already, he's already hiked it on 25% on $50 billion. Yes, that's what the words are. Go to the music and the dance. The music and dance is with the meeting in the Oval Office with the negotiating team, U.S. and Chinese uh, bilateral delegation that was here. Led by Bob Lighthizer. Lighthizer on, on our side, yes. And Liu He from China. Correct. Yes. Vice Premier. It, it Good pronunciation there, trade guy Bill. I actually studied Chinese many, many years ago. Excellent. And know nothing but occasionally get a pronunciation correct. All I know is like Ni Hao or and stuff like, you know. I mean, Ni Hao is good enough that's, a that's, lot of places. That's pretty much it for me. Well, if you saw the video, <laughs> it was a very pleasant meeting. It was, yeah. it was very upbeat. The president himself was sort of beaming and talking about making progress and we're going to be in great shape and we've got some flexibility and he, he was disinclined to push hard on it. Now, I would note that the March 1st deadline uh, for this tariff uh, suspension uh, is very close to the timing for the meeting with uh, the president of North Korea. Uh, so, so the Kim Jong Un meeting uh, is very close, closely coupled to this March first deadline. I imagine that those are not independent entities at this point. That the the China's role in facilitating or or creating problems in the bilateral Trump uh, Un talks or Trump Kim talks. I guess. Yeah. Uh, Victor will correct me. Yes, Kim. <laughs> no, Kim. Trump, Kim. Kim, Trump, okay. Kim Jong Un. Okay. Victor and being Victor Cha, the great Victor Cha of CSIS, leading Korea analyst, and 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 uh, you heard it here. If you like stuff about North Korea, listen to the Impossible State podcast, uh, also on this CSIS network. Yeah, he's but the best. He's the best there is on North Korea. But you're saying these the, the Kim Trump talks and China U.S. trade talks are somewhat tied. 
the dates are very close, and I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that they're, that they're likely to have an effect on one another. Well, I I would just say I don't think it was planned that way. I mean, the, no, the, I think the, the, the way it is now. The, the ninety days came up because that sounded like a good round number when they were in Buenos Aires back in in uh, the end of November to have the meeting, and so ninety days just adds up to March second. I don't think anybody was thinking about a Kim summit then. Uh, it may have been now that they're thinking about it, although I, I I'm a little surprised. Because it seems to me it is more Trump-like to try to get two big events, two separate big events, two separate press hits, two spotlights out of this rather than try to cram everything into three or four days, which is going to be one event. Both of these events get good ratings. They're going to get fantastic ratings. The world's going to be watching both of them. Uh, Why would he put them together? It doesn't make any media. Well, you're the media expert. It seems to me you'd want to spread them out and get a double hit, wouldn't you? Well, I I would think. I mean, the only thing is, logistically, this is a president who doesn't like to travel. Yes. And you have the ability here to um, negotiate two for one, you know, in his same trip. And and it could it could end up being a historic and beautiful trip, which would be an interesting media story for him. Uh, but, you know, flying on Air Force One is not exactly like going to Dulles and getting on a commercial flight. It's not. <laughs> it's not. It's a little more comfortable. Did I ever that. tell you about the first time I ever went on Air Force One, the first thing I did? I never even knew you'd been on it in the first sure, place. Sure. I've been on Air Force One when I covered the White House. Uh-huh. Um, and when I covered the White House as a, as a producer reporter, the first thing I did when I got on the, on the Air steal Force the One- Steal the M&Ms, probably. No, no. I didn't steal the M&Ms. Although that was an exciting part of of the trip, but not stealing them, being handed them with the presidential Ah. seal. This was during the George W. Bush administration. And the first thing I did when I got on Air Force One was I banged my head on the overhead compartment. Now, that was (laughs) quite painful because the overhead compartment on Air Force One is really tough reinforced steel. It's not like the plastic on the commercial thing at Dulles. So, you know, it is a different experience flying Air Force One. And my first uh, Air Force One experience, I think I was somewhat concussed. Well, I'm impressed nevertheless. I've never been on it in my life. I didn't do a very good job reporting that day. At least you had a good excuse. (laughs) You suffer any long-term brain damage? No, I think I'm okay. The close, the close coupling of the media events may or may not be a problem. I'm, I'm with Ted Koppel on this, which is while, while President Trump is in office, every day is a, a holiday, every meal is a banquet for the press. This guy creates so much news uh, on a routine basis. If you're, if you're a White House reporter or correspondent, this, is, this really is the golden age because you've now – you're now not even multi-platform. You're sort of all world. You you have to be everywhere at once. You're getting TV contracts. You're 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 getting more ink. You're getting more. You're getting more of everything. And the stories because, write themselves. Yeah, the stories. Well, the stories write themselves, and the stories are constant and ongoing. And you know, yesterday there was a story about president spending a lot of time on executive time during his uh, normal workday. Do you think he's thinking about trade during that executive time, or is he thinking about? media strategy around trade during that executive time. I thought he was watching TV. Yeah. Well, I think well he, that's part of media strategy. <laughs> I think he. I think he's a, still a good real estate developer, and he thinks about leverage. And right. leverage applies in all those situations and on all the topics. All right. So do we have leverage over the Chinese? I mean, the Chinese, after all, during this, this negotiation last week, they surprised White House officials by pledging to buy 5 million more metric tons of soybeans while negotiations continue. Now- Talk about a drop in the bucket. That's not going to help our soybean farmers very much. No. But it is was a surprise gesture. But if I had to take blame or responsibility to, for one of the other economies, I'd take it for the U.S. and not the Chinese economy. Chinese economy is soft. 
This has been reported pretty broadly, and most of the reporting is it may be worse than the official numbers indicate. Yeah, China is slowing, and uh, and that slowing economy is creating a, a lots of problems uh, for uh, the, the president and the government uh, per se. So, and our economy is resilient up to a point. Uh, but what the Chinese have to calculate, I mean, you've asked a really good question: uh, the, where where the leverage goes, and it's been a subject of of a lot of debate. Uh, I think if you assume that the Chinese uh, government makes rational economic decisions solely on the basis of economic policy, uh, then you can argue that we might have some some leverage. Um, but I don't think that's the way they make uh, that's not the way they make decisions. Um, all their decisions are informed by the number one goal, which is uh, party preservation and the preservation of the China Con- Communist Party of China as you know, the controlling of authority in the state. Uh, what we are asking them to do, particularly in terms of abandoning state-owned enterprises and some of their other goals, are things that are going to reduce the party's control. And that's stuff that they can't agree to. Um, everything that Xi Jinping has been doing has been to magnify the role of the government in the economy mm-hmm. rather than reduce it. Uh, which is exactly the wrong thing to do from the standpoint of economic policy. He's making everything worse, but he's going ahead and making everything worse, I think, because they want to maintain control. Right. The the only way to escape the middle income trap is to liberalize massively and to get the services economy growing. And services economy are very dependent on market signals. I know of nowhere where services are well managed from a central from the top down, and so th- this is a uh, this is a moment of 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 real uh, you know crisis for uh, for Chinese economic planners because it's one thing to plan an export led uh, you know production economy. It's quite another thing to try to plan an insurance market with consumers. But there there are some things changing. Actually, another uh, you know commercial message here. Read my column this week, which is on this, which is on- We always read your column. Well, good. I'm glad, good to know that somebody does. Uh, The changing nature of globalization. And uh, McKinsey did a report on this that was quite interesting because it suggests that, it didn't suggest, it found that uh, while global trade in goods continues to grow, uh, the percentage of internationally traded goods as a percent of output is declining across the board. More sales are domestic. And to the extent they're international, more of them are regional. And what's happening in big economies, and China was specifically mentioned, is the creation of exactly what economists have been telling the Chinese to do for decades, which is a bigger consumer market. In 2000, the one number I remember, in 2007, um, 17% of Chinese goods were exported. In 2017, so 10 years later, 9% of Chinese goods were exported. What is happening in China is the development of domestic consumption, and we're getting consumption-led growth. And what we're getting, therefore, is domestic supply chains inside of China to meet that growth. What that means for trade uh, is fewer exports, relatively speaking, and also fewer imports because more of, uh, you've seen more domestic value chains. That is probably good for the Chinese economy long term. But the short-term signs are exactly what Scott said. They're not recognizing that. Yes, 2007 happens to be the year where trade peaked. That was peak trade. If you measure trade as a share of world output, 
total trade as a share of gross world output. 2007 was the peak. It declined precipitously in the recession, but has never recovered as a sort of a share of output. So, and this is one of the reasons why the, it's actually, it's not necessarily bad news. It just is. No. Yeah. The other thing that's happening is the huge growth in trade and services yes. and trade in, in data and data transfer. Di- digital trade, which, yeah. is, which is weightless. Which is actually good yeah. for us because yeah. we are global leaders on both. We have advantages that don't necessarily lead to zero-sum games. So our edge in services is a positive-sum game, whatever China does. To be continued on China, finally, uh, the president tonight is expected to call on Congress to approve the new USMCA, Mexico-Canada Agreement. Um, what do we think is going to happen there? Well, we've disagreed on this before. I mean, I think that, uh, that it's one of the few things that's gotten I don't entirely agree on. I think it's going to get done. I think the shutdown has thrown the schedule off a little bit. I was predicting by the August recess. I think that's still possible. But uh, the International Trade Commission, which has to do a report on the economic impact of this agreement, has indicated they're going to delay their report probably by the full 35 days that the government was shut down. That kicks it from March 15th to April 18th or 19th, something like that. And so a lot of the maneuvering is going to slow down a little bit. I still think it gets done. Scott and I were talking before this, uh, before we began talking to the microphones. And I think the one uh, thing that could go badly wrong here is if uh, the president decides to play the withdrawal card, you know, announce that he's going to withdraw from current NAFTA in an effort to jam the Congress. Uh, My original thinking was that that They'd all complain about that, but in the end, they would go along with it because they don't want to have no no new NAFTA, no old NAFTA. I'm getting more worried that that might prompt the Speaker to pull the plug on, on and change the rules of the House, as she did in 08 with the Columbia Agreement. And that's kind of a lose-lose outcome for everybody, but I can see her you know, being pushed to do that. I'm still highly skeptical, obviously. I, I spent a long time getting paid to see the dark at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> okay, and so, so I tend to be somewhat jaundiced in this respect. But look, I have never heard Speaker Pelosi say that trade is anything on her priority list. She has lots of priorities. None of them list, list the USMCA. Right. Uh, second, Chairman Neal of the Ways and Means Committee has essentially said the, the, it needs more work. It's not ready for prime time. And so all the messaging from the leadership of the House. And look, implementing bills, it's a revenue bill. It's supposed to originate in the House. That's the key point of decision. And I just see a lot of reasons to stall this. I also now am convinced that the ITC report will be another important reason to stall it because it's not. It's going to be disappointing. The, the amount of, of, of economic gains associated with, the, with this agreement versus its predecessor is too small to, to be, make a meaningful argument that it's going to be great for the country if we go ahead with USMCA. Well, the, the ITC didn't find a huge economic benefit from, from the last one From either. the original NAFTA, and now we're, we're going uh, against NAFTA as the base, and USMCA as the new world. So it, it, it's, uh, it's going to be a tough sell. I think that Congress will find ways not to do it. And so my prediction is it's not going to happen in 2019. So we'll continue this debate. Yes, I'm, I'm standing by the, the, that he's wrong about that. So far, it's playing out the way that I think we both predicted, which is, of course, the Democrats are going to say it's not good enough. Uh, and from their perspective, it's not good enough. They're going to demand changes. And I think what's going on right now is a process of trying to figure out what they should demand, because there's a 
bunch of things you can focus on. And you, they're not going to get them all, so they have to you know, trim the list a little bit. What they would like, I still think what they would like to see is a scenario in which they say, go fix these things, and Ambassador Lighthizer goes and, and does that and brings something else back, something new back, and they say, ah, we made you fix it, now we can vote for it. Not all of them, but enough of them uh, to go along with the Republicans to get it through. And as we've said on this before, and I'm more convinced of it now watching the Congress, uh, the Democrats are the, the, the evolutionary direction amongst Democrats is in a more pro-trade direction. The new ones are more pro-trade. Now, that's a majority. I don't think we're there yet. But, uh, you know, what is it? the new Dems, which has been in the past the group of uh, the hardcore of uh, pro-trade votes, they're now up, what, over 100, I think, in terms of new Dems. We're not talking new Dems in, like, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez Dems. We're no, 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 this is the no, new, no, Democrat the new centrist Democrats. Cent- and these, this goes back to Al Fromm and, and really Bill Clinton. Yeah, yeah. yeah. the, the Democratic Democratic leadership conference. Yeah, right. And they're not all pro-trade, but, yeah. uh, you know, they were down to, like, 28 uh, in 2015 yes. when, when the TPA was voted on. Yeah, we're down to two blue dogs then. Yes, and now the, that group in the House has become much larger than it used to be. A lot of the people that were elected, people that are elected from swing districts, you know, tend to be, uh, for both parties, tend to be centrists. And there's a lot of those, and I think what is going to happen, I mean, Scott's exactly right about what the Speaker has said and done on trade uh, in the past, and I don't think it's a personal priority, and I think she's proven herself to be something of a skeptic. She's also someone who listens to her caucus. And I think the caucus view is yet to be formed on this, but it's going to be a more complicated debate than it was four years ago when they were doing TPA. Well, can I say I'm going to stick with my pessimism, but I hope Bill's right. We will see. Maybe we'll have a bet. We could have a bet. We could could wait and see. Either way, it's happy State of the Union Day. Indeed. The next podcast, we can talk about uh, how we got everything right. (laughs) Or wrong. (laughs) Stay tuned. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thanks, Thank you. Andrew. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.